Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, and welcome to The Parting Shot, your dose of everything pop culture. I'm H. Allen Scott. When I was growing up in a suburb outside St. Louis, Missouri, the only Asian food I had access to was your run-of-the-mill Chinese food. And considering my family's lack of adventurous nature when it comes to new food, the wildest we ever got with Chinese food was fried rice, orange chicken, maybe crab rangoon. Oh my god, I love crab rangoon. So, needless to say, Asian food was very much foreign to me as I became an adult. My palate has since expanded to include a wide range of Asian dishes, but I'll be honest, it's still limited. That's where social media has come in. Because of platforms like TikTok, exposure to a wide variety of foods is now literally in the palm of your hand. And a wide variety of Asian food in particular has grown in popularity in recent years. Just a few years ago, the Washington Post wrote about how Asian food is the fastest growing food in the world thanks to social media and pop culture. Considering this and my deep love for Asian food, I wanted to do an episode with a few of my best friends who just to so happen to know a thing or two about Asian food and social media. My first guest is Jimmy Guo, who came in second on Sweden's MasterChef. We chatted about Asian food internationally and how, thanks to social media, access to food in various cultures is only a few taps away. After Jimmy, I'll chat with one of my closest friends in the world, Kim Chi, who you may know from a little show called RuPaul's Drag Race, and my new friend, John Kung, a trained chef popular on TikTok and YouTube. The two of them host the new podcast, One for the Table, a show all about Asian food and their deep, deep, love and passion for it it's so good it's a fun chat it's like hanging out with two friends and talking all about like food in general but particularly asian food and they also happen to be funny i mean kim is one of the funniest people i know but she's also one of the rudest people i know which makes her even more funny (laughs) i'll post links to their social media and the podcast in this episode's show notes so go on grab a snack because you'll need it for this episode and i'll be right back with my first guest jimmy guo and then stick around after that for my chat with kim chi and john kong The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Jimmy Guo, how are you? So good to see you. I'm very good. I've as I, uh, just got in through the door. I'm like catching my breath because I've been carrying <laughs> some stuff. Um, you know, the life as like, you know, a food influencer. Creator, like, yeah. So to say, like I, I would call myself a chef from time to time, but like most of the time I'm a food stylist and, you yeah. know, doing shoots. It's a lot of logistics. Yeah, I'm sure. But that brings me to my first question. So just full disclosure, we know each other personally, and we met years ago. I don't even remember when at this point, but how, when I first met you, you were not necessarily, you certainly weren't a food influencer or a chef or anything like that. You weren't even really, to my knowledge, like that much of a, I mean, you were probably a foodie person, but you weren't, your life didn't exist and your work didn't exist around food. When did all of that start for you? I think I've always been a food person, but I started like putting it out into the world when I think maybe 2017 when I moved to London and I was for the first time uh, living in a place with a nice kitchen Mm. and 
I had quite a lot of free time since I was freelancing. And uh, London's a great city to get inspired when it comes to food. Like there's a lot of, you know, uh, South Asian and East Asian um, communities and there's lots of restaurants. So, you know, having lived in Stockholm, Sweden, where these things are only present in a very limited amount, coming to London was like, you know, experiencing so much more. And also at that time, I was traveling a lot through East and Southeast Asia. So yeah. a lot of things kind of like primed me to realize, wait, this is actually something that you love so much. Mm-hmm. And it's really nice if you can start exploring how to make this kind of food at home. And I had like the ingredients were available in, in London that way. Yeah. And how did you go from just having a really nice kitchen in London to appearing on your country's version of MasterChef? Like how did... Like, because that's only a five-year pe- or what four-year period between that and when you appeared on MasterChef. How did that happen? I think whenever I'm like interested in something or I feel passionate about or something, I it goes into like an obsession. Like I will spend like all my time, free time, just like researching, watching, learning, reading about food and cooking and recipes, and you know. Also, just generally anything that is regarding that. So it went into an obsession of like, you know, sucking in all kinds of information I could get my hands on and also just spending a lot of time in the kitchen. So I was I was starting out like quite small, just like wanting to cook the food I wanted to eat Mm -hmm. and started posting that stuff on Instagram because food is really nice to share on Instagram. And at the time I was working in fashion, I was working as a copywriter I was had a background as a stylist. So food was something very like people, no one was really associating me with yeah. food. So um, I was just posting that stuff. And, and I felt like a lot of people were responding to it. They were saying that this looks amazing. And they were getting asked a lot of questions. People were really interested in the kind of stuff I was cooking. So um, I felt like there was like this immediate response. Of course, I didn't have much of a social media following. It's mostly my friends. Yeah, um, I was one But of I them. felt yes. like it was, was very <laughs> engaging. Yeah. Way more so than like fashion related content. So you decide to apply and you know, you do well on social media, the food's your new inspiration. You decide to apply for Sweden's version of MasterChef. Yeah. Like what prompted you to do that? Were you nervous about dude? Like the actual moment you decided to apply for MasterChef, when did you think I could probably do that? So I had been watching like the Australian version of MasterChef, like several seasons of, I love that show. Mm-hmm. And I, I would watch that show and get very emotional and feeling very like strongly for the ones who were like doing well. And like, I just felt very much like I wanted to have that experience too. Yeah. And just so amazed by the level of skill that the Australian competitors, like that they showcase in that show. It's incredibly good. I think it's one of the best reality shows in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was thinking about, I should try this out. And and Sweden's MasterChef, like you cannot compare it to the Australian one. Sweden's a much smaller country. And I felt like, yeah, I, I think I could probably do okay. Were you uh, nervous at all? I mean, because that's a big. Of course, like, I was. Because you weren't um, even like necessarily a, a big cook. You'd only been cooking for a couple of years, really. I mean, like in the way that Master Chef was. So, like that would have made me so nervous. I was really, really nervous, but I was also very encouraged by uh, my friends to go for it. I mean, of course, you always have a little bit of skepticism to to the. <laughs> Uh, to the to the compliments that you get by your friends and family, but okay, not my mom though. She's very very honest. Uh, <laughs> if she doesn't like anything, she'll say so. Yeah. Um, but I felt like I was trusting my own judgment because I'm quite discerning when it comes to taste and food. I when I eat something, I know immediately what I think about it and what could be done yeah. to amend it or make it better, etc. So. I was trusting my own instinct. I, I was thinking I should probably be able to make it through like the casting rounds and get to the top 12. Cause there's like a whole audition casting process that goes yeah. on before you go into filming. Yeah. And I felt like I should at least pass those instances of, um, you know, mm-hmm. application. Yeah. So the application is very undramatic itself. You just fill out a form online. You like attach your social media profile. You write in like, a short bio of yourself and do a video presentation. And uh, once I sent that in, it was like, 
okay, let's just wait. Did you think you were going to get on? Did you think you were going to get cast? Do you think you had a good chance? To be honest, I was absolutely certain they would cast me. Really? Like, Why? But, no, honestly, I felt like they would be stupid if they weren't. <laughs> that's the way to do it. See, now that's a casting producer's dream when someone just knows that you deserve to be on. That is. No, but I, I know I could do. I felt like I could do good TV. Like you never really know until you see yourself on the other side of the screen. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because sometimes people can be fantastic, like personalities in person, but that doesn't translate onto the screen. Yeah. Um, so I figured like, okay, at least I should be able to make a good impression for the casting agent and then we'll see how it works out. Yeah, definitely. Now, where did you place? Like, how, how did it go? How did the whole, because I mean, we're obviously in the United States, but the thing about you is that even though you're on a Swedish version of MasterChef, like the internet makes everything local, basically. So like I was able to watch your experience, maybe not the show, but I was able to watch yourself online and what you're posting on Instagram all the way here in Los Angeles. So like, even though it's so local for you, it's still not really. You have probably international fans turning in and seeing the food that you're making and seeing everything that you're doing in Sweden. So like how, where did you place within, within the whole competition? And like, what was, since it's already said and done, what has been like the aftermath of, of participating in the competition? I ended up placing second, uh, which I think I'm so happy with the way I did in the show. I will say that I placed second. I didn't win, which is totally fine because I'm so happy for, the winner, who is a close friend of mine, I'm really like, you know, he's 21 years old, this whiz kid, Adam, and I wish him all the best, truly. And mm -hmm. we have this really strong friendship throughout the show. So I felt like in the end, it doesn't really matter who gets to win because the winner has to do a winner book, mm -hmm. which I thought was a bit of a curse because you have to push out a book through a very kind of limited time frame and and yeah very restricted for what you could be doing or not be doing so i felt like if i win i at least get to take the prize money and say i could win but if i don't i get to do it my way yeah and that's what i've been doing and the aftermath i would say that you know it's easy to maybe feel like master chef is like the big endeavor but it's really just the beginning whatever you do afterwards is like where you make you know, where you build your, the future of your career. Yeah. It's also interesting, too. You don't necessarily have a formal culinary background. So and that's very indicative of a lot of people in a lot of different genres, you know, that they excel at something, but they don't necessarily have the educational background that used to be the requirement in order to be the thing that you want to be. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. the, I think largely the Internet and social media has sort of changed how and even after the pandemic, how we change sort of the things we look at and the things we're interested in doing. And I want to know though, cause I, I hear from a lot of friends who, you know, they excel, they, they win a competition show or they do something and then they become successful from it. But there is a bit of like an imposter syndrome that happens that you're like, well, I, I didn't study this. Am I able to stand there with a great chef who studied this for years and years? And like, am I able to compare myself and what I do to what they do? Like, do you suffer from that at all? Do you ever have doubts about the work that you do now? Absolutely. I think a bit of imposter syndrome is perhaps a bit of, you know, healthy humility as well. Okay. Um, I don't think that you need to have a formal education to be a good chef mm -hmm. or be a good cook, I'll say, because when it comes to all these creative, like, you know, fields of work, I think talent is really important, but also having skills and experience. Of course, I'm not going to say that you know, the formal training that so many incredible chefs out there isn't worth anything. Mm -hmm. But there are also so many professional chefs who cook terrible food. Yeah. Yeah. So in the end, that's not what's going to make or break you. The talent is really more important than the training, but you cannot have the training without the talent. Mm. Yeah. Does that make any sense? No, it does. It makes perfect sense. It's almost like you can have all of the training in the world, but if you don't have the talent or the instinct. It's like what I say about comedy in a lot of ways. Like when there's, you can teach someone how to tell a joke, but you can't teach someone how to like accurately deliver the joke. It has to, there's a cadence to how you communicate that like you, you have to just have, you have to have that talent or else the joke is never going to last. And it's, it's the same thing with you. I think And that like, sure, you maybe don't have the background in food, but you have the talent for food and the personality 
to sell whatever that talent is you're using, and you're doing that. And I'll say this, I'm not going to try to compare myself to, you know, these restaurant line cooks who have this incredible skill set of being able to deliver incredible food consistently throughout a really stressful, like, service. Mm -hmm. I don't have that, you know, experience because that takes years of experience, takes years of being in the shit, takes years of, you know, preparation and seeing all the tricks of the trade. I don't really try to compare myself to those kinds of cooks because... What I can do is to inspire people. So yeah. I choose to do that, focus on my strengths, really. Also, you know, you have these possibilities once you finish a show. You could like go into training, working in a restaurant kitchen, because that's kind of the first thing that people ask you after after a thing like MasterChef. It's like, oh, so so what restaurant do you work at right now? Yeah. And I'll be saying, that's actually not what I'm trying to do. I'm not looking for a job within a restaurant because if that was my goal, I would have had a job in a restaurant a long time ago yeah. because that's really hard work. Yeah. And, and they're constantly looking for, for people who can do that work. Um, I understand that my main talent is to engage people and get them interested in the food I'm making. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm by no means saying that I'm the best cook. Yeah. Although I do like food I cook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you have to start with you. You're your best critic. But... I, one of the things that I also find really interesting is you, I mean, you're obviously Asian and so much of your food is inspired by Asian culture and inspired Mm. in a way where you're representing and inspiring dishes based on your own culture. And I wanted to know how has not only your own culture, but also as you post the food that you do online and you, 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 you involve yourself in the social media of sort of the food world, which I'm obsessed with. How Mm. has your focus on Asian cuisine sort of influenced your social media presence and sort of how you represent yourself in the world and, and, and what you, the direction you go within the food that you make and the things that you post? It really felt like the only, the only thing that made the most sense to me was to do the food that I love eating and I love making. And for me, that was, you know, I have Chinese background, I have Chinese parents. So it made a lot of sense for me to be, become in, you know, in Sweden, become the person that's kind of like representing and being the face of Chinese cuisine. Mm-hmm. Um, because there was no one else uh, filling that spot at the time, especially no one who had, uh, you know, a Chinese background. Yeah. So that gives you a lot of authority in a field of like cooking and, and a field of cuisine that is perhaps very mystical to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I will say this, I've always felt very strongly about what is right to do or not, yeah. whether I think it's exciting or not. Yeah. You know, um, you could be very, strategizing around what kind of food I should be making, because I think that's like the most um, confusing thing for a lot of people who has been on MasterChef. Yeah. Um, they've proven that they can cook, but where do they fit into the market afterwards? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Fully what, no, I do. What is your brand? What are you representing? What is, what is your USP really? Yeah. And for me, like being Chinese and also loving Chinese food, I felt like this is really where I know more than most people in Sweden. So I'm going to do go for that because also that's what I love to cook and eat. Yeah, of course. Do you ever feel because one of the things that I think in in sort of talking with friends and just sort of communicating about food, because I am like a foodie, but also I was raised in the Midwest, United States, Missouri, like my the biggest spice that we had in our home was salt and pepper. So there was no like any flavor in my family. So when I grew up and moved and moved to New York and Los Angeles and all these places and traveled the world, I was able to try all these wonderful foods, but they're very foreign to me, even down to like I hadn't had an avocado until I was 20 years old. Like it's there are simple foods that are very foreign to me. So when Mm. especially in a country like Sweden, where I mean, I don't know the Chinese population of Sweden, but I'm assuming it's probably not insanely large. And when you're posting and you're you're celebrating Chinese food, which is amazing. Is there ever sort of a moment where you feel like you're introducing something new 
to people in Sweden? Or do you ever feel sort of isolated in the food that you present because it is maybe possibly different than the other cuisine that's being presented either on MasterChef or any other thing that you do? I hope people think it's something new. I hope it is something that is, you know, foreign and, and exciting because I'm always interested in in seeing things that I haven't seen before. Uh, so I don't hesitate to present things that people might not have seen before or that they're not familiar with because I'm not that easily yucked out by things that I haven't seen or tasted. Yeah. And I don't think that the people that respond to the kind of person and the kind of food that I make will either. So yeah. I just think it's nice that maybe I'm showing them something that I've never even seen or tasted before because I think that's exciting. Yeah, that is exciting. I mean, part of me wants to like, because I always like, I never can introduce any, like all of my friends who are foodies. You are on this podcast. We also have Kim Chi. She's one of my best friends and we eat all over Los Angeles and she introduces me to new food all the time. And John Kung, her her co-host of her podcast, he's an mm. amazing cook and introduces me to food left and right. But I never mm. am able to introduce people to new food. So like my goal is to have you and Kim and John and anyone else Come to St. Louis, Missouri someday, and I will introduce you to fried ravioli, which is the most disgusting yet delicious dish you will ever eat in your life. It is it good. It is not good at all. It's it's actually okay. horrible. It's a it's 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 a breaded deep fried ravioli, Jimmy. It is like it is insanely bad for you, but at the same time also delicious. And we dip it in marinara sauce, and it's just well, like it's not love fried dough sounds great. I mean, yes, it's great, but also, do we really need to be deep frying ravioli i mean possibly yes i think we should i'm a fan of it so i think that would actually that i would be able to introduce you to food which i think it sounds like you spent too much time in california (laughs) (laughs) yes exactly i have well my last question for you is so now that you've done all of these things and you are in sweden but yet because of social media what you do is international how has social media changed sort of the way you do your career well, I think that's perhaps the like my main advantage over so many other skilled chefs out there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because yeah. I have this audience. I have this way of engaging with an audience. And that gives you enormous leverage mm-hmm. over people who are able to say I'm being compared to other Chinese cooks. And they might be incredible cooks, but they're not able to bring their message to the people, to engage other people into making them understand or want what they're making. And I think that's, you know, just as important as the things you put out is to make, to sell it really. Yeah. Well, Jimmy, where can people find you on the internet? um, I think Instagram is the main, uh, my main media. So at Jimmy Guo, just my name, hit follow if you're around. It's all in Swedish though. So I'm going to say that that's a little bit of a, um, now, Instagram can translate anything. Trust me, I've been able to. Follow. Oh, you do. You use the translate function. Of course, I do. I for everything that you've done since the beginning, even on your stories, I use the translate function. That's how I've been. Oh, I love that. That's how I've been able to follow. Which is what I mean. I, everyone is able to follow what you're doing and what so many. I follow so many international cooks who I'm able to. I don't understand a word that they're saying, but I'm able to translate it. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy. Okay, yeah. please, please follow and please. Hit the translate button. Yeah, it's great. Hit the translate button. I love that. Jimmy, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back with Kim Chi and John Kung from the podcast One for the Table. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Kimchi and John Kung, oh my God, you two, I love the podcast. I mean, I am biased, I will admit, because I am good friends with Kim, so like, of course, I'm 
prone to love anything. Well, not anything she does. There's a lot of things I hate about her, but <laughs> but I love the podcast because I love food. Hello. How are you guys? Hello. Thank you for Hi having there. us. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. You guys, the podcast is like, every, I mean, Kim and I go to dinner, go to lots of meals, lots of food. and Many, many meals. Many, many meals. And I have said for a long time, you just need to talk about food. You need a talk show about food. You need a travel show about food. You need a food. So this podcast, I feel like in some way I manifested. I'm just going to own that. I'm going to myself, Kim. Is that okay? Alan oh, so actually did um, help think. us a lot with like a lot of my questions on like what to do and like, you know, where to go. So yeah, you're responsible. I'm a helpful friend. I am a helpful friend. Yeah. I think it's a perfect podcast just because it, there's something I wanted to ask you guys a, a big thing about. There's something about sort of like Asian cuisine. Now, I'm from the Midwest and I will freely admit the only Asian cuisine I had ever had growing up in St. Louis, Missouri was Chinese food. There are lots of other options mm-hmm. in St. Louis, but that was the only option that was like, okay for my family's salt and pepper palate. You know what I mean? So I feel like the American sort of uh, experience with Asian food is either Chinese, Thai, or maybe sushi. And like sushi is even kind of a stretch for a lot of Americans, I think. What do you hope from the podcast people will sort of discover about the plethora of Asian cuisine? Uh, Personally, for me, like I want people to just try new things and new flavors and not be afraid to try new things. Because the worst thing that can happen is you might not like it. But then after you try it, you might discover things that you like. And then maybe you might not order it again right away. But maybe like down the line, someone was like, hey, let's go get Korean barbecue. You're like, oh, I've had that before. Yeah, let's go. It's like, wait a minute. This is actually pretty good. Oh, so this is how you order it. Oh, so this goes with this. Yeah. Oh, these are the flavors that work together. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. yeah, I just want people to try things, you know, and with an open mind and approach things with respect. I think that it's like a big part of like our thing mm-hmm. because um, what you find disgusting is, you know, someone, someone might be eating it like every day. It's like it's their essential meal, you know? Yeah. So even if it doesn't agree with your taste palate, just say, that's not for me, but I'm glad mm-hmm. I tried it and move on. Yeah. What about you, John? Yeah. So, well, first of all, I do want to like mention the fact that all of us are from the midwest everyone here so we have (laughs) representation pure michigan over here um but yeah as to what kim says 100 like the worst thing that can happen to a person trying something new as far as food goes um outside of an allergic reaction but like (laughs) is that they don't if is that they don't like it and when you don't like something you're eating that is like a just a rough 10 to 15 seconds. But if you're trying something new and you do find yourself to be like, to, to, to like it, then that's like a new love of your life that you have for the rest of your life. It's, it's, that's something that I oftentimes say when it comes to people trying new things in regards to food. And yeah, we are not in the business of, of like putting down anyone's cuisine and, we got the idea to do the podcast while we were on our, one of our road trips where we were just like, we just found that we, Kim and I would just talk about food for hours and hours and hours. And I was like, well, uh, and then one day Kim was like, Hey, would you like to do a podcast one time? And I was like, well, let's try it. Um, sure. I'm, I'm receptive to that idea. Took us about a year, but we got there. After I was insisting on it for a long Yes, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Through, yeah. through the help of your manifesting, yeah. 100%. Exactly. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm a gift. Oh, that's so true. That is so true. Because I remember when I first had Indian food, which is, you know, a part of the Pan-Asian experience. And I, mm-hmm. I was in London. I had never had it before. It was totally foreign to me. I was kind of scared about it because that much sauce only came on like spaghetti for me as a child. Like that was it. Like there was no more. Sauce food was not a thing unless it was spaghetti. Mm-hmm. And... I was blown. It was like a euphoric experience eating it because it was so I was at this like crazy shithole restaurant in London somewhere bad. It probably wasn't even that like people in London probably were like, that's the shit Indian restaurant. But I was in love with it. I was obsessed with it. And I came back to New York where I was living at the time and I just ate so much of it. And I've had the same experience with Korean barbecue with with with, you know, Thai food with so many different types of food. And I wanted to know, like, if there was ever because one of the there's an episode of you guys' podcast where one of you mentioned something that really stuck with me. You talked about going to school as a kid and like being embarrassed about the food you were eating because it was different from all the other white kids in school and how 
that just hit me because it never even like crossed my mind to be embarrassed about the food that I like. You know what I mean? Because I'm the fat guy who loves all the food. So like it just never hit me that way. What what sort of impact did that embarrassment have on how you approached food as you got older? Do you know what I mean? Oh my God, John actually, um, we joke about this all the time. We call it um, our lunchbox trauma. Mm. Yes. Also the name of our band. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, every Asian American, you know, like has this experience growing up where, uh, you know, like I had just moved back from Korea and then my mom just made me like a lunchbox with rice, like boiled eggs, kimchi and some like ham, which is like a very standard meat. Also like even Americans like looked at it, you know, like there's nothing that was like offensive that was like in there. Yeah. And yet, like all the kids in cafeteria are like, ew, what is that? They were like literally all coming up like one by one, like looking at my lunch, like acting like grossed out. Wow. Mm-hmm. You know, meanwhile, they're eating like pizza, like dipped in ranch with like chicken nuggets, you know, with like iceberg lettuce. Yeah, which sounds delicious to me, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then for the rest of my like school year, like I never brought any of the food again. But if I could like go back now, I would stand my ground. Like bring like home from lunch every day, and if anybody says you say you want to try a bite, like just try a bite. Like don't knock it till you try it, and let them try it, and maybe like their mind will change. Yeah, you know, back then things were rough because I grew up in a town where it's like majority like white kids, you know, <laughs> yeah. and I was like a foreign ESL student. Yeah. What about you, John? I my my lunchbox trauma came like was when I was a young kid growing up in the suburbs of Toronto, and I think I must have been like maybe like six years old or younger, possibly like five. Um, And my mom sent me to school with like a thermos of, and it wasn't even like home cooked food. It was literally like a pack of ramen that she stuffed, she cooked and stuffed into a thermos. And what happens when you do that is that the noodles soak up all of the broth and so like when i opened my thermos to take the noodles out the kids were like looking at me and that was back like people didn't even like white kids weren't even eating ramen back then not Mm -hmm. even like the instant kind so they looked and they were like what the hell is that what does that smell and of course like inside the thermos it was just the noodles and the kids were saying that like it looked like brains and they were accusing me of eating brains and like everybody was coming around looking at the thermos and i ended up actually throwing that whole thing out including the oh. thermos oh. um and all i want and then i like pretty much like begged my mom to give me like basic bitch sandwiches yeah. Yeah. with the lettuce and the white bread and the tomato and like the ham at that point and then like after that i was only getting like lunchables and stuff like that but like yeah that was that was my first experience with it and then there were just some things that i was like oddly enough i had that kind of shame for like noodles and stuff the time that i stood my ground must have been like a year or so later when i was eating like those like tiny little um you know you know the seaweed that they make for sushi the paper they sell those pre-packaged and seasoned and i loved snacking on those things as a kid and these kids actually started attacking me about it when i was like eating some waiting for the bus and they were like, what is that? I was like, seaweed. And of course they were like, ew, seaweed or whatnot. And then I was like, well, just try. And then I just gave them one and they were trying it. And then it turned out like, you know, they started to like it. Yeah. So like, no, those are like the two main food memories that I have of like trauma as a child. But like now, I mean, I don't blame myself for feeling bad because I was like a strange kid in a strange country. I, I really honestly don't know what I could have done in given well, that situation i mean i'll just from no. my own perspective because it really hit me when you guys talked about that and when you do talk about that on the podcast because it's like it's sort of like the the answer to a lot of things like you know people of color don't have to fix the problem of racism it's the mm-hmm. people who started racism which is you know white people so like mm-hmm. the problem i think for me at least was and what hit me so hard was that like it never even dawned on me that that would mm-hmm. be an experience that someone would have being embarrassed about the food that they ate it never even was a thought in my head because to me food is just food and if it's different well okay i mean maybe i was just like an accepting kid but i was just like okay well it's different i don't care like i'm gonna eat my right. just cupcake you know what i'm I mean? gonna hear like a more um depressing story so in middle school there are these like korean snackers called um squid peanut balls mm-hmm. and it's like oh so god it's like there's peanut on the inside and outside it's like a crunchy like cracker 
Yeah. And then the other show, there's like thin strips of like dry like squid on it. Mm-hmm. So I was just like eating that in the classroom because like it was my favorite snack. And this kid was like, oh, what is that? Can I have some? You know, just like any kid in the classroom, you know, when they see like chips. Yeah. So then I gave him some and then he's like, what is this after he ate? And then I showed him the package and it was like, oh, it's squid yeah. um, and like peanuts. And then he's like, you like, like fed me squid. And then he was like gagging and like choking and really? he was like acting the most. And him and his friends beat me up after class. Oh, God. That's oh, my God. We're giving him squid ah. in middle school. Well, how did you? And it's like. You're the one that asked for this, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, what kind of impact did that have on you? I mean, did you eat the squid snack still? Oh, I didn't learn never to share again. <laughs> <laughs> and she doesn't, she doesn't let me eat anything off of her plate <laughs> this day. <laughs> no, I, I will share things off my plate. <laughs> well, you will. You will. I'm, I'm exaggerating. You know, in my safe zone, you know, my friends, I'll share. But yeah. you know. no, it is. It is something. And that's something that I think I love about your podcast is that they're like the surprise about being embarrassed and the trauma about childhood food experiences and being different from the other kids and what they're eating and the way your podcast kind of allows people to feel comfortable about food especially food that is foreign to them in a lot of ways especially for you know like i said earlier like there's only a small experience of how the americans really sort of partake in a normal in a normal quote-unquote way with like asian food the things that they know about asian food it's very limited and Mm -hmm. You guys kind of give an allowance to not feel like you're it's just two foodies and you guys are above the people who want to maybe learn more about Asian food. It's almost like you're inviting people to be like, let's talk about Asian food and let's talk about food and our love of food. Who cares if you're an expert or not? You know, and I think your podcast really has that vibe. Was that intentional? Do you think? Yeah, that's what we tell over, I guess, too. Like, don't psych yourself out. Like, don't you know, don't get stressed out. It's just literally, we're just talking about whatever. And it's like a chill time is what we tell everybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really like just, that's like almost like a very casual dinner time conversation about people who just enjoy food. And then like, you know, that leads us into like, just like any dinner time conversation, like it leads us to whatever other conversations that we have Yeah, that stems from that. But it really just like, it starts around food. It revolves around food. And, you know, I think it, it also says something about the way that you know we don't enjoy food kind of like in the same way like i I think we had this conversation about how like the different ways different cultures have enjoyment of food where it's like in the west we realize like the the enjoyment comes from like very high class Mm -hmm. um pieces uh i guess high class meals steaks caviar all that stuff but like in asian communities like it doesn't really matter like how wealthy you are like rich people do be eating like a bowl of noodles on the street corner with everybody else. And the enjoyment of food translates into that. It's not like just something that is reserved for people that can afford it. Like the enjoyment of food is, is something like across all classes in Asia that, you know, that uh, it's just available to most people and it just stretches across from that. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that because that's something I remember, you know, being a kid from the Midwest and coming from a sort of pretty like not wealthy family. That's even a stretch. We were basically poor and having that moving to New York or Chicago, all the cities that I've lived now, Los Angeles. And of course I've had access to really high end food and classy food. And I almost have, there's a class system when it comes to, I think, not American cuisine, but Western cuisine in general, sort of like in that if it's not an expensive cut of steak or an expensive like caviar thing, like you're saying, or whatever the expensive dish is, then somehow it's not like high food. It's not good food. It's not like or it's not worth enjoying in a way. I exactly. mean, like, yes, everybody can enjoy like a burger and like some fried chicken. But at the same time, it's like there is definitely an air of exclusivity when it comes to enjoying like if you just look at like tiktok yeah um and a lot of the tiktoks of on like the the places that people go in new york and stuff like that they try to like bring on this air of exclusivity and stuff yeah but meanwhile you go to like tiktoks in asia and it's more about knowing where to go mm-hmm. as opposed to being able to afford to go there and that's something that i loved about sort of the different discovering different cultural foods especially asian foods it's that there is really a lack of a class system when it comes to the discovery of Asian food and just in general, cultural food in general, in that like 
it's just sort of everyone is just kind of welcome to sort of experiment and try. And I remember there was like a taco place down in Los Angeles, downtown Los Angeles once that they had like some contest where whoever could take the hottest food or eat the hottest taco. And there was something crazy and I was able to do it. And I got my picture on a wall and it was like one of the proudest moments of my life to be able to I'm this like white salt and pepper dude from from Missouri now who has a picture on a wall because I was able to take the hot food. You know what I mean? (laughs) It was like it was a big moment for me because I was just like, I can do that. I can discover different foods and try different things and sort of really raise my level of sort of what I can approach. And cultural food, I think, allows people to do that in a lot of ways. I mean, there are like other barriers of entry when it comes to like exploring or or learning about another culture's food most of it's like language and kim touched on this earlier uh sometimes you just really need to know what to order yeah because like a lot of people will go to a place to a restaurant and order something but then it's like the equivalent of i guess ordering like cheesecake but you went to a place that's known for their steak yeah or like you went you went to a bakery and then you order you ordered like you know a roast or whatnot but it's that it's that equivalent it's like you need to go somewhere when you go somewhere it's like maybe they do have really good food um maybe but it maybe like a you might just not agree with what they serve or b it's like you ordered the wrong thing and actually i can speak for a lot of chinese places like that you can easily just order the wrong thing <laughs> yeah like um for example when i was like reading like the yelp reviews at this one vietnamese restaurant someone wrote like a very disgruntled one-star review to the vietnamese restaurant because um they ordered pho um so like we ordered the pho dish and they brought out like a plate of salad um and they didn't explain like what the salad was for we didn't know like how to eat it um so we just ate these bland bean sprouts like on its own oh wow which like for if you had and the pho is such a universal dish that like you know like no one will tell you how to eat it when you order the restaurant you know and those like herbs are supposed to go like in the broth, you know, like when it arrives at the table. If you don't know, right? Like, yeah, fun. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I feel like I've been in that situations, even with you, Kim. Sometimes in places that we've gone, and that like I don't know how to do or how something is supposed to be put together in the best way. Because sure, I can put it together any way I want, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I want to learn how people right. how people experience this food, and and you kind of need that little guide a little bit. But at the same time, like you wouldn't leave a bad Yelp review about it because you'd because like that was the equivalent like eating the brain sprouts and the basil outside of the fuzz kind of like eating the the sliced tomato and the sliced onion that came next to the burger that you ordered and then saying like oh this salad is gross like that person is an idiot (laughs) a person is a complete idiot but Mm -hmm. I do want to you brought up something interesting about TikTok and social media in general which I feel like Social media has, ex- I mean, I was a kid, I grew up on like Food Network. I love a cooking show. Like I, that is my default. If it's HGTV or Food Network, like those are the defaults. And then at nighttime, it's Bravo. And <laughs> it's, it's sort of this, like, I'm a, I was obsessed with cooking shows. And now with social media, I feel like TikTok in particular has sort of upended how we experience and discover food. I mean, Kim is constantly sending me about like recommendations in LA about where we should go based on a TikTok review or someone that experienced something on TikTok. How has social media sort of allowed people to not only learn how to discover different types of food and how to even eat, like like what you were saying about pho, like how to eat the different types of food, but also how has it sort of changed the game with how people experience new food, particularly Asian food? I think um, a lot of TikToks are very like educational towards like audience. So like, nowadays, like if I want to like cook like an ethnic dish that I'm like I'm not familiar with. All I have to do is just go on TikTok and like look up like, I don't know, like cow soy recipe and like million TikToks come up and all these are creators. They're like thorough with like step by step with the video with the ingredients and to tell you like how to like make things or like how to eat things. So it makes any type of cuisine or any type of food, it makes it so accessible to everyone. Yeah. All you have to do is like type it in the search bar. Now, I think the most important thing that TikTok had or in platforms like TikTok had um, in all of this is that it let the people of the culture speak for themselves and um it allowed you to represent your culture with like a very low barrier of entry onto like how those stories and how those recipes could be shared because like for the longest time what did you have you had food network and then later on you had bon appetit on youtube and you know these were great for what they were but at the same time like you know we 
as we saw with um BA uh during like the pandemic like they were, they were right full of problems and a lot of times like there there's infinite amount of cultures and infinite amount of dishes but only like a few people that could represent them and oftentimes like if especially like if you were a southeast asian cuisine and trying to find like allow or a filipino person to like talk about your own food forget it you're not going to you weren't going to find that on tv and you weren't going to find that in like anything from Condé Nast at the time. Yeah. Um, but with TikTok, it honestly, it allowed people and it allowed us to like speak for ourselves and how we got to share our food in a way that was comfortable in a way that wasn't exploratory or judgmental, which was often the way like that it was coded in those shows. Um, and so I think that allowed people to feel more comfortable trying it for themselves, whether it be making it or going out there and and finding it. Um, at the very least, they knew what to order when they visited the restaurant next. Yeah. There's also this like whenever you would watch, like speaking of the Condé Nast and the Bon Appetit stuff, like I remember I'm mean, because I watched them, too. But then, of course, I also watched the downfall in in, in sort yeah. of like I was watching a Bravo show. And it what blew me away by a lot of it is that. You know, a lot of people experiencing different types of food, especially a lot of, you know, I see on TikTok, there's a lot of sort of people who are, you know, of different cultures, experiencing different cultures, food, but then they'll have this sort of, it almost like it brings you back to that, that, that lunchbox trauma in a way where they'll have this sort of reaction to be like, ew, what is this? Ew. And part of me is like, like when I go to a restaurant with Kim, Kim knows this. I always say the only two things I won't eat is, is both. Pickles. I don't like pickled things. I know it's a problem, but it's pickles are a problem for me. Olives and mushrooms. But I will I will eat it if I'll eat the mushrooms if I have to. But like it's a, it's just it's a, I'm not going to jump at the chance to eat the mushroom is what I'm saying. And to me, that's like how you should approach it and be like, just put out what you don't like and then have an eager mind going into it. The people on social media who sort of are almost co-opting a lot of narratives around different cultural foods. Do you think that's going to become more of a problem? And will it sort of bring about a new kind of lunchbox trauma in a way. You know what I mean? I don't know about a new lunchbox trauma, but I did see um, a TikTok the other day and it was this Korean woman and she was crying because um, she packed her daughter uh, kimchi for lunch. And when she brought it to school, she said like the kids knew what the kimchi was and like they wanted to have some and they're asking for more. And she's saying like when I was growing up, like the kids weren't like this before. And it's so cool to see like the kids are more globally aware and like accepting of like our culture now. So like that were my little cold gay heart. <laughs> I think when it comes to like videos of people trying food and having like overly dramatic, awful reactions to it. Yes, you do see videos like that. But what short form media has done, but it is also like those videos do have a chance to go viral yes but so does the retribution that comes from that I, I don't think virality is necessarily a good thing across the board it can be bad for a person so yeah somebody saying you to a dish might might like get a million views but so can like the countless amounts of like responses to that video from people either of the culture or outside of culture, asking that person, who the hell raised you that you would like say something like this and full on like put it on the internet. Yeah. Um, oftentimes those videos get taken down really, really quickly from, from the people who realize their mistake. And I think it shows like a greater desire of acceptance into other cultures because most people do realize that it's like, okay, just because it wasn't for you doesn't mean you have to report on with that kind of reaction. Yeah, I love that. I love that you said that. So I wanted to ask about some food related things, specific food related things, because I feel like I need to know some things. So first off, there are, you know, there's the orange chicken, there's the fried mm -hmm. rice, there's the the sushi. There's all the things that like Americans know, of course. What do you think from the plethora of Asian dishes? What do you think is the one sort of Asian dish that isn't popular in terms of mainstream you know, food culture, but Americans or people in general should just get into. I'm thinking something like kimchi. That is relatively that's a new as an adult food for me that I did not have as a child that I love now. What are some other sort of Asian dishes that you think Americans need to be getting into but aren't crazy hot right now? You know, I'm going to personally I'm going to say 
hot pot. Oh, because I would say like among like the general like American public, it's not a popular dish. Yeah, explain Honestly, hot pot just for people who don't know. There's like different country and like different variations of it. The broth can literally be anything. It could be from like bone broth to like miso to like spicy mala to like sweet sukiyaki. Um, and then basically you take all the raw ingredients, whatever ingredients you want, um, and thinly sliced meat, and you basically dip it in this boiling pot and then you dip it in whatever dipping sauce you want and you eat it. You can literally make it however you want it to. You can use whatever ingredients you want and it's relatively healthy. And it's like the perfect like wintertime food, like warms you up from inside. You're eating the food as it's like being cooked, like while it's like fresh and hot. And it's like also a great way to consume vegetables. I think we did that for your birthday this year. Wasn't that a sort of a hot pot? That was last year we did that for a birthday. Yeah. We went to Shibuya. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Good old Shibuya. Good old Shibuya. What about you, Don? What do you think? What do you think people are missing out on that they need to get into now? Um, uh, People in general need to get over their aversion to the flavors of licorice. Oh, Um, love licorice. Yeah. So licorice and like closer related is like more anise flavored like star anise and and general anise seed like that is such a key and important role in a lot of chinese cooking um but when it can put in savory dishes and stuff but a lot of people like are very averse to like using a lot of that those spices because of licorice trauma um i i there's all there's just trauma everywhere we're just handing out trauma but like the trauma that comes with eating a bag of jelly beans and having like 10 sour ones 10 sweet ones and then one black licorice we're like what is that that is awful no wonder why people here don't like it yeah um so they just have that like association with anything that tastes like anise and really like i'm trying to push it because it was like it makes your meat and it makes savory food taste so much better. Um, and if only you could like, you know, get over that uh, initial aversion to licorice, like you can find that it can be like a secret weapon when it comes to your cooking. So that would be the thing. But also like, I feel the same way about like spicy foods. Like we can, we can stand to eat more spicy food here in the States. It's good for you. I it think is spicy good for food you. is good for you. It helps yes senses and it just you know re i i learned years ago i did a lot of work for hillary clinton's stuff and she eats a pepper she eats like a really hot pepper instead of like drinking coffee or anything literally that's her like health food is this pepper. that's wild really hot <laughs> okay and it going it's like one of her things so yeah. i mean i don't know if anyone wants to necessarily follow always what hillary clinton does but i had <laughs> one suggestion that I think you should follow Hillary Clinton's advice and eat the peppers. That, that, can, that can be good for your liver. For yeah, probably. Like, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Oh, say, with don't, li- go ahead, Kim. No, 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 no. Say, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, with licorice. I, I don't know if this is a German thing or not. But when I was growing up with my dad, who was German, and my grandparents are German, we, I was a kid who loved the black licorice. And I was always the kid at school who's like, whenever we were eating licorice, I would be like, save the black beans for me. And it was like, it was because my dad loved it. I don't know if it's a German thing. I don't know what it was, but I love a black licorice. Love. Mm-hmm. Um, I my experience with licorice is um, growing up, they used to sell these like fancy uh, mints, but they were like floral mints, and they came in this really beautiful tin with like flowers on them. Oh yes, and they were like rose or like lavender scented, and when you like sucked to the end of it, there was like a licorice seed inside. Remember those? I, there was something that my grandma had something similar to that that she would like suck on. Yeah. Yeah. I would always eat those because it made me feel like a pretty princess <laughs> because the tin was like so pretty. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love that. Well, my last but, question. Oh, also, wait, wait. Before we go to the last question, I do have one more thing that I do want to talk about. Please, please. I'm ready. Food cooked with MSG. Oh, oh that's right. I don't, I forgot that we're still there. We're still here. Yes. And while we have like a whole new audience, I would just like to say, MSG is not bad for you. Um, How did that get started? How did the whole anti-MSG situation get started even? uh, So there was this letter written to a medical journal that people even like looking back, don't even know whether it was like seriously written, but it's this one letter that people cite back to talking about something called Chinese restaurant syndrome and about like, you know, physical aversions people would have whenever eating uh, Chinese food. And they would talk about like bloating and headaches and whatnot. Um, But 
somehow this like one letter became cited in a whole bunch of other articles and reports totally unsubstantiated because MSG is in literally everything that we eat, especially like if you like Italian food, if you like potato chips, if you like Doritos, Doritos is literally just Mm -hmm. like uh, tortilla chips with MSG on them. Tomatoes, mushrooms, tomatoes, mushrooms, uh, Parmesan cheese, soy sauce, all of that stuff has like has MSG in it. Um, But it gets attributed to Chinese food and like via like, you know, xenophobia, sinophobia, it just becomes this villain in our diet culture so a lot of people like you know they won't eat anything with msg in it but if you're eating like something processed like a bag of chips or something and it says natural flavors that's exactly what it is so people don't like msg and they associate it with chinese food um but honestly like you're still eating it throughout the rest of you like you know yeah yeah, and there's no protein attached to like MSG, so you can't be allergic to it. So anybody that says like, "Oh, I'm allergic to MSG" or "I'm like sensitive to MSG," it's like lying sack of shit, and <laughs> they're more likely like I don't know, like on hypochondriac. They're like, "Oh, I had MSG and my like skin is tingling." Like, no, that is not a thing. Uh, it is one of my favorite things ever when someone who is so. I don't know. I, I don't think they're necessarily hypochondriac. I think they're just like lack uh, an adventurous bone, but they're always just mm-hmm. like, oh, I can't eat that. I'm, a, I'm allergic. I just have right. it's, it's a slight. I just have a slight itch. I don't know what it, it's like something. And it's like, no, girl, that's your like, that's your belt too tight. Like, I'll just mm-hmm. you're not itching. There's no itching involved here. You're also fine. like I realized over the years, some people love making a personality out of like being a sick person. <laughs> like they're they love constantly being sick. And it's so true. Like, and I'm like, it's just like life is like hard already. Like, what is your life like that boring that you have to like give yourself a personality by like pretending yeah. like this like sickness that doesn't exist? Yeah, I had I had for years I had a like I thought I was allergic to peanuts because my mother told me I was allergic to peanuts because I had a lot of hives like when I was a kid like a lot mm-hmm. of problems and she just assumed it was peanuts. So we always had like hypoallergenic dogs and everything. Turns out I'm not allergic to peanuts at all. I'm not. I can eat peanuts all I want, but I didn't know that until I was an adult. The same with me and kiwi. I guess I had like a reaction to kiwi when I was young. Um, so I never had kiwi growing up. And then I went and got tested and it turns out I have zero food allergy. Like <laughs> I am not allergic to anything at all. Yeah, out of all um, people, you are not allergic to any food. I know this. Yes. I've seen this in action. <laughs> so then I like I had kiwi for like the first time in the like, longest time. And I'm like, this food is delicious. I cannot believe I went my entire life without eating kiwi. <laughs> yeah, insane. Well, my last question for you both is, and it's one of my favorite questions because I, to the detriment of what my doctor always tells me and to everything that anyone ever says about eating healthy and living healthy, I love late night food. I love a late night diner. I love a late night, any, any sort of late night snack or food or mm-hmm. adventure or anything. If it's midnight, I want to eat something and I want it to be really good. So I wanted to know what are your, both of your sort of late night go-to foods. You can, and it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, like Asian spice it can be anything, but like, what do you gravitate towards when it's 1am? Okay. So I'm going to sound so old like for saying this, but I've become that person where I don't like to eat past 10 p.m. It gives you heartburn. It's not that it gives me a heartburn. I don't like going to bed with like a full stomach. Mm-hmm. Like I love early dinner <laughs> and I love like I love like the food being like fully digested before I go to bed. Literally. Like John knows it's like I never eat like past like a certain hour, you know, before hey, bed. Going to a movie tonight. Yesterday we were arranging this, and I was like, mm-hmm. "We're gonna go to like a ten o'clock showing of Guardians of the Galaxy or something." And she's like, mm-hmm. "I fall asleep at ten thirty. Can we go?" So we're going to a five o'clock show. <laughs> yeah. okay, <so> yes. <laughs> showing. I'm like, oh my god! Like, am I like, am I, am I getting old? Yes. <laughs> but um, back when I was younger, and I used to enjoy like food like at later night. For me, it wasn't even necessarily about the food, but I love like the act of like going to get food at people. So, you know, like after a club, you all sit at a diner together and then you like rehash what happened that night at the club. Um, If you like, and I think my favorite thing to order is fries at ranch. Oh, yeah. 
you know, like it's got to be a crispy fry throat ranch and maybe like, so this is my favorite, like guilty pleasure diner food, but like a hot turkey sandwich mm-hmm. where it's like a slice of white bread. And then they put like, like a carved turkey on top and they pour gravy and they usually serve it with like stuffing and cranberry sauce. How yeah, like an open face sandwich kind of thing. Yeah. Um, with a side of fries. Uh-huh. With ranch. Yeah, I'm doing the fries with mayonnaise. That's my I I, I love mm-hmm. I love any fry fries with and a mayo is very good. A mayo is a dipping. That's one thing that Americans don't do that it really pisses me off. That happens a lot in Europe, but like I love a mayo as a dip. Oh mm-hmm. I love no, it. I get I get you. I get it. What about you, John? So same answer as Kim. I don't think I've been awake past 10 p.m. for at least a couple of months. Maybe the last time. No, Kim and I have we, we even when I was like over there. Oh yeah. No, we were up past 10 for uh Naomi's thing we went at to Soho the, House. Yes, we, that we was the one time alley that we already probably got at ten o'clock. Oh my God, no, we ate so late, and then like I ended up sleeping so late because I had to let the food digest. Yeah. Yes. So working in fine dining back when I was younger, one of the things that I loved to do after like a night out or after like a service, we'd get. I would literally open up my studio to anybody that was still up at like four o'clock after we leave the after hours oh, yeah. and I always keep like a stash in my freezer of like cuts of things from previous dinners that other people had paid for. So like leftovers of like really good ingredients. So I'd have like some vacuum sealed, like lobes of foie gras that it wasn't enough to give to another person, but you know, maybe I want it sometime or yeah. like uh, some Toro or caviar or something like that. And so I would take those ingredients and just like put them on the most like basic things. Usually it was like on dumplings or noodles and stuff like that. And I just serve it to like me and my friends. So we would have like, you know, caviar and tater tots like 10, 15 years ago or foie gras ramen, like that kind of stuff. But that is like stuff that like, unless you were in the industry or like outrageously wealthy, but most of it's accessible is only like if you had access to that kind of stuff was yeah. like if it was left over from something that somebody else had paid for. And so that's stuff that like we would eat late at night. And that's like, was always my favorite thing. And it will be like the best memories that I would have for working in restaurants. You just like- described, there's a scene in the film, in the Meryl Streep film, It's Complicated, directed by the great Nancy Myers. And she is on a late night date, I think with Steve Martin in this part of the film. She's on a late night date and she owns like a bakery in Pasadena or something or Santa Barbara. I know exactly the scene you're talking about. And they do like, a, which is totally unrealistic. Yeah. She's not baking croissants at 4 a.m. In, in Santa Barbara. She's just not doing it. It's a long process. She's not doing that. But see, she's actually using the laminator going yeah. back and forth on the dough. I totally know. What you're totally fake. You're totally fake. About. But it is so perfect to me. The idea of like knowing someone who either works or owns at a restaurant or a bakery. And after we go out at night, they can open that bakery up just for us just to eat. Whoa. How, how much of a dream would that be? That was like my life. That was me like once a week and it was all like bartenders. So they would grab like, the open bottles of like the best wines that like didn't get finished off of the night. And then we just like come to my studio and there would be food, there would be drinks, there would probably sometimes be drugs. And then we just like have a night of it. And those were like always the best. Those were the best nights. Of course, now I go to bed at nine 30 and I watch my stories (laughs) at seven. So, (laughs) well, Kim and John, thank you so much for doing this. Where can people Find the podcast. And also, where can people find you both on the internet? You're both very easy to find out on the internet, so it's not going to be hard. So um, our podcast Instagram is number one, one for the table on Instagram. And that same name, number one for the table, um, can be found in any streaming services that does podcasts. And my social media handle is same across the board, kimchi underscore chic. Oh, I also should mention that our podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube um, as well. I think we're on Google Podcasts as well. And I am just on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok. I'm just John Kung on all of those. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much. This was great. Thank you. Good to see you. Good to talk to you. Are you hungry yet? Because I know I am. Let me know what you're snacking on. I'm H. Allen Scott on everything. And thanks for listening to Newsweek's Parting Shot. I hope you're able to leave a little rating and review wherever you're listening to this podcast. And for the latest news and podcasts, head to Newsweek.com and follow Newsweek on all the socials. And while you're there... 
subscribe. Subscribe to my newsletter for the culture. It's great. Until then, watch something fun and have a great day. Being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. <laughs> Which is like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The parting shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.